0: I want you to open your Bibles once again this morning to Isaiah chapter 30. And our subject is faith or compromise. And it has to do with how easy it is and how often it happens that what we say we believe, under pressure, we change our minds. Which tells us we weren't really convicted about what we said we believed at all. We preferred to believe what we said we believed, but if it's going to cost me a job, it's going to cost me a a lot of things, I'm going to bow out. I'm going to change my conviction. If it's going to cost me my popularity, a lot of people will change what they believe in a crowd because they don't want to be persecuted. So they really don't believe that. They aspire to that, They have a preference to be known for that, but under pressure, they won't take a stand. And taking a stand is what conviction is. Now, Isaiah 30, God feels this way, and these were God's words that just among many, Jeremiah has more than this, but these are some of the statements that God makes about his people, his chosen people, the ones he personally selected out of Egypt to be his own people. He could have picked anybody, but he picked these people, brought them to him, brought them with great and mighty miracles, greatest miracles ever in all of history, brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, gave them the law, promised them he would this and promised that. And what they did in response was this He said, verse 8, now go right before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come, that would probably include us, forever and ever, this eternal word, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the word of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, or maybe to the preachers and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things the seats. Quit talking about the Holy One of Israel all the time and see some of that before us. Now, God's complaint was this. You don't want to hear about me. You're taking me for granted. Church, God, Christ, heaven... All of that's an option in your life. If you want it, it's okay. If you don't, it's okay. God, you know, he understands. He's just a wonderful old fellow sitting somewhere in heaven. And so we, we sort of exclude God from our need in this life. We don't need this. We should go to church. Nice people do, but we don't have to besides, if there's other things to do, then, you know, surely he understands that we can't be restricted to just church all the time. So we have this attitude, this philosophy of life that I'm okay. And if I need any really deep, big help, then I'll call on God to help me. But the rest of your life is live for yourself the way you want to live it. You write your own book, and you live by that, and that's your opinion, and that's what you go by, and you have as much right to what you think is right as anybody else. You're living in a day in which this is the way it is. Everybody, like in the book of Judges, is doing that which is right in his own eyes. But then he said, in verse 12, this is what God said, this is how all of that's interpreted by God. We said this last week. He said, "Because you despise this word, I have never met a church member yet who would ever admit." I mean, the casual church member, the one who hears something says, "Oh man, anybody here listen to that again?" That type of an attitude, or the one, "I don't want to go this morning. I'm with, I've been the last two weeks. I don't want to go again." Or the one who hears the Bible and says, "Well, well, that's, that's just your opinion. You're just blowing your horn this morning. That type of attitude. God said, because you, with that attitude, despise my word. And as I mentioned last week, the same thing sort of was mentioned in the book of Malachi. He said, why is it that you people hate what I want you to do? And they would say, as church members, we don't hate what you want us to do. We don't despise your word. What do you mean? We We don't hate you. There's other things to do. And God said, your attitude, your lifestyle, your choices are an indication from your heart of how you feel about me. And I take that as you don't want to hear what I have to say. You're not interested in the way I want you to live. You don't want somebody to speak what I have to say. You want smooth things. You even said prophesy illusions like some magician. Just make something up. Make us laugh. Make us feel good. And that's what you come to church for. And that's what you want. That's the extent of your religious life. And God said, because you hate this word and because you despise this word, And because you trust in deceits, he said in verse 12, and you trust in oppression and perverseness, because that's what happens. Nothing goes right. Of course, when nothing goes right, you blame God. You know, it's always his fault. Even though you have no real deep interest in him, you know, when things don't go right, it's God's fault. Even the insurance companies would tell you it's an act of God. You know, the storm. We blame God. And God says, now because you have turned away from me, casually or however you want to describe it, he said things are going to happen in your life that are never going to work well. You're going to strive, struggle, be irritable, tore up, uncertain, unsettled the rest of your life. And when your life is over... I will not be able to say to you, even though you're my people, the people that I brought to me, even though you're my people, I will have to say to you, I never knew you. I think that's tragic, you see. The opportunity that they had and that we have here this morning, in our lifetime, us and our children, the opportunities that we have to do things that are right the opportunities that we have to make right decisions and find the favor or the grace of God in our life and have things work well for us. That phrase or phrases in the Bible, it shall be well with you and your children after you. I want that. But I can't expect God to do that just because I read it. There's a way you live. That's the choice you have to make. That's what people compromise. They don't see why they have to do everything just that way. I mean, after all, and they begin this end-time philosophy, and they talk themselves out of truth, and nothing works right for them. Then they get disgusted when they hear the Word and all these promises that God makes because it haven't worked for me. Well, why should they? If you examine yourself to see, really, if you are in the faith, you might discover that you're really not. And why should God accommodate you when you have no interest in him? That's what he's saying. Things like that. You know, even the New Testament says uh, it says that a couple of times. He said that in Romans chapter 1, God describing people in the last days, he said one of the outstanding traits of the last days is that people do not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's not what they talk about. He's not in their discussions. They're uncomfortable talking about religion or about spiritual matters, and when they did hear about it, they didn't want to remember it because the crowd they hang with didn't like that. So you, you don't know much about it. Or in the last days, Second Thessalonians 2, it says that in the last days when the Antichrist is on the scene and he's here with all of his lying signs and wonders talking people out of their faith so much that if it were not for God, even the elect would be deceived in those days, I think. He said the reason they perish, those people, is because they would not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Therefore, they received a lie and perished for it. See, God didn't stop that. God allows us all to be tested and tempted. Everybody in this room can compromise anything you want to compromise. You can say you believe anything you want to say. Saying what you believe, it doesn't mean you believe it. It means you say you believe it. If you believe something, you do something. I think I said last week that believe is a verb. It's an act. It's something you do. Believe is not a noun. Oh, I believe God, I believe this, and I believe that. Well, anybody, the devil believes like that. But to believe is to live, is to act like something is true. He that believeth and shall be. So when we say we believe something, it is expected, at least by God, that that's the choice that we're going to make in life to live by. If I believe that God is what he said he was, then I demonstrate by the choices I make that I believe that. If God said he will supply my needs, then I'm going to live as much as I know how As though he will. I may not see it yet. The money may not have come in, this or whatever my need is. But I'm going to live like it has because faith is the substance of things hoped for. And the only way you know you have faith is about choices you make, the way you live. It's a lifestyle. It's the only way a man can be right with God. And to maintain that right standing with the Lord, the just shall live by faith. It's a faith that comes from God. It is a faith that is honored by God. And it is a faith that brings results from God. It's what makes a man pleasing to God. And we cannot please God in any other way. But to say you have faith, oh, I go to church, I believe God. Well, that's good. Do you live like you believe God? Does your conversation tell people you're around that you believe God? Or is your mouth filled with bitterness and anger, cursing, judgment, opinions, yakety-yak? God didn't teach us that ever. We have never been taught like that in the Bible. The reason we do it is because that's what we believe. I don't care what we've heard That's what we believe, because what I do is what I believe. And sometimes I want to believe this or that, but boy, compromise. You know why people don't like to hear the word I said last week? Because of guilt. Guilt. That feeling that I'm wrong. It's not just a feeling I know I'm wrong. When you do something wrong, you know you're wrong. Guilt part of your conscience. Your conscience is that thing inside of you, that system of judgment inside of you that judges your actions and your deeds and your words. Cast judgment on it. You see a girl walking down the street, if you're a man and you think a lustful thought, what does your conscience tell you? You shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. See, having a conscience... Based on the word doesn't mean you'll do right. It means you can do right, but you can do wrong. You can do wrong. Conscience doesn't rule you. It just tells you what's right and what's wrong. Your will is what rules you because that's how you live. You live by choices. Your conscience tells you if your choices are right or wrong. What happens when you cheat on a test in school? Well, maybe it didn't work with you. I got used to it. But when you were not fair and honest or you cheated or you stole something, your conscience bothered you. You wouldn't talk about it. You didn't want to be labeled as somebody who would cheat. What happens to little children if they steal something? A kid takes something that's not his, a little boy, a little girl. What do they do with it? They hide it. Why do they hide it? They don't want it to be taken back. Well, why would they hide it? Because they know it's not theirs. They're born with that. Adam. Where are you, Adam? Adam says, I'm over here behind this bush. What are you doing over there behind that bush, Adam? I'm scared of you. Why? What was Adam's problem? His conscience. He knew inherently in his heart he was wrong before God. There was no law, there was no teaching then. The only law was don't eat of the fruit of that tree. One law on all the earth, one rule, one law. But that's all the devil needed to bring sin into this world is one declaration from God, do not do this, and that's what the devil's after. You know how he did it? Half God said. And then today he would add this to it. Do you really think God meant it that way? What's he after? Get you think about it? Thinking. The devil deceived Eve through his subtlety, through her mind, Paul said. Hath God said? you reckon that's what he meant? Do you suppose that he really meant you would die? <laughs> I mean, for taking a bite of creation, which he said was good, you think that you're going to die because of that? Logic. Reasonable. <laughs> People in this world make a living teaching you to think like that. It's an option to God. You thought you had a conviction. Oh, we're not supposed to eat of that tree. Oh, no, uh-uh, we're not. She said we're not even supposed to touch it. Oh, no, oh, no, Mm-mm. What made her compromise? Words, thoughts, others' opinions. They're everywhere. Oh, do you really believe that's what God meant? She should have said absolutely. He didn't have to say it twice. If God said don't eat of it, he meant don't eat of it. That settles it. No more. I will not eat of it because I believe what he said is true. I believe that's where I'm supposed to live and my belief is going to be seen in my choices. So she thought, "Well, maybe it's not so bad." I mean, look at the fruit. I mean, he said, "Come here, darling. Look at that." I mean, uh, Eve, come here. Look at that fruit on that tree. Man, ask you if there was ever an apple. If it was an apple, maybe it's a pomegranate. But if there was ever something made for a lovely lady like you, that's it, girl. Would that be good? Mm, Big. All she had to do is think about it. Or to just think. The boy and the girl sitting in a car together. Really, that's dangerous. But then the conversation gets a little close and compact. And then things begin to happen. And he or she would say, we need to stop this. Why? Your conscience. You know it's Wrong. I don't care whether you go to church or not. You know it's wrong. Nobody has to tell you it's wrong. All your friends say, well, everybody's doing it. I mean, we're going to get married anyway. I mean, come on. after. But in spite of all that, you know it's wrong. Well, everybody does it. I don't care if they all do it. It's wrong, and you know it. Now, you want to violate your conscience, you keep doing it, because eventually you'll sear it, and you'll have no more again any guilt about anything. Then you're out of control. You sin with, without regard for who gets hurt. It doesn't matter anymore. The devil just got him another one. But that's the way it works. That's what your conscience does. Turn to John 8. Let me show you something in John's gospel about your conscience. Your conscience, I don't think it ever truly leaves you alone. I don't think there's ever a day in your life that your conscience just stays away from you. Look at verse 7. You know the story here. It said that they had found a woman, in verse 4, taken in adultery in the very act. Now, today, it's nobody's business, but then it was breaking the law. It was not right. And they brought the lady to Jesus. She had no argument. She knew she was wrong. But trying to trip him up, they said, Master, we saw this woman taking an adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And of course, you know the story. He just didn't even look at him. He kept writing with a stick. So they wanted to know, why don't you tell us? So Jesus did tell them in verse 7. He said, whoever among you is without sin, throw the first rock. Which one of you has never messed up or made a mistake? This is a sin of adultery. What about the sin of lying? I know in my past in the church, if you wore this or went there, or you took treatment for this or that, All oh, you were terrible. But one time I countered some of them. I said, what about gossip? What about what you're doing? Which is the worst sin, gossip or going to a doctor? That's what they said. I can point out a single verse that says that one of the things that God hates is sowing discord, yakking. He hates that. But people compromise that because they pick something better that they want to deal with, just like Pharisees. They omitted the weightier matters of the law so they could nitpick about little things and divide the people. This woman here, he said, among you, whoever doesn't sin, throw the first stone. I think he said it specifically like this. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And that's all he said. And he stooped down on the ground and begin to write. Adultery was a, a sin that brought death. And here is God in a body, and he so down, he rolled on the ground. And the Bible says in verse 9, and when they heard that, now follow me here, being convicted by their own conscience. Does everybody have a conscience? They do. Does a conscience mean you also have convictions? You do. Something rules your choices. And he said, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And Jesus looked up, lifted up and said, and saw just that woman. He said, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, no, Lord. And Jesus said, well, I do. I got a lot against you. Stand there and let me tell you about it. He obviously could have, couldn't he? It's an interesting story. It's a compelling thought. But the meaning is about convictions and conscience. So many things that we think we're so convicted about, I believe if you do this in the law, I believe we we ought to do this and do that. Jesus said, throw the first stone in. Go ahead. You've never sinned. You've never done any sin. Oh, you've lied and cheated and done that, but you've never done what she did, so you're qualified to kill her. They realized they weren't as convicted about some things as they thought they were because their conscience... Something on the inside of them said, you can't do that. There's something wrong with you. Conscience. In the book of Titus, it talks about those in the church who talk good and sound good, but their works are horrible. Remember that in Titus 1? They profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. They say the right things. Just like in Isaiah's day. You're saying the right things. You're singing the right songs. You're lifting your head. You got all the religion. You're doing all that stuff right. Whoa. You're doing all of that. But your heart, it's when you go out and live in the world around your family, your friends. Wherever you go, that's the real you. What's coming out of your mouth is what you really believe. That's what motivates you and controls you. If you sit around and listen to Yakety Yak a lot, you'll become a Yakety Yak. Listen to some of those talk shows, those conservative, you know, and I'm a conservative person, trust me. Listen to all the criticisms all day long. Listen to people put people down and talk foul about this. Listen to that. You'll start talking like that. And then when I say you shouldn't think like that, now you're mad at me. Who are you to tell us we're not supposed to be conservative, God, gun, and guts made America type people? Well, I'm telling you that God, guns, and guts didn't make America. God did. We're going to fire you. I don't doubt it a bit. I don't doubt it a bit. So getting to the message this morning, and I want you to turn to uh, 1 Samuel. And getting to the message this morning, faith is a conviction. True Bible faith is a conviction. A God-ordered conviction that I cannot change. There's no compromise with a God-ordered conviction. If God said, this is the way, walk ye in it, there is no other way. You cannot base true faith on anything else except what God said. Faith comes by hearing. Now let me show you a couple of verses. Here's some examples about... Conviction In 1 Samuel chapter 15, I hope these stories are all familiar to you, but in 1 Samuel 15, it's a story about Samuel, Saul, and a duty and a mission that he sent Saul on. He told him in verse 3, Now go and smite Amalek. We all know who the Amalekites are, the perpetual enemies of God's people, Amalekites. Well, he said, go and smite Amalek. And he said, and utterly destroy. Is this what the Bible says? And utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. Listen to this. Slay both man and woman, infant and suckling Ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Everything that has anything to do with them, destroy it. That might be tough to do. But that's what God told him to do. So he got 210,000 men to do this. That's a pretty good-sized army. So here goes Saul with 210,000 men to Amalek. He comes back in verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Saul did, but he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything else was vile and refuse, and they destroyed everything else. Now, is that what God told them to do? Let me ask you a question. Because the same thing that happened to Him happens to us. What God gave them to do, that was His will, was not something that would be acceptable to a lot of your friends and a lot of people. Whether it's tongues talking or believing in divine healers, just a lot of things. That you can't maintain certain kinds of friends and do things different than they do. So they went out to fight. Now, here's Agag, the king. Why would he save him alive? Well, maybe they wanted to torture him a little bit or wanted to mess with him and and make a fool out of him when, you know, look what he had done to God's people. Here's all these cattle. Now, here's what compromise does. Man, they got some nice cows, don't they? Boy, they're really high now, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Look at those sheep. Well, they got a good herd of animals over here. It'd be ashamed to just, just kill them. You remember what the prophet said? He said, "Kill them all." I know what the prophet said, but come now, let us reason together. Does it seem like that's a smart thing to do? I mean, at the price of stuff today, just to kill it and let it lay. Come on. All you need is somebody talking you out of what you say you believe. Next thing you know, they compromise everything God said, almost. They saved all these sheep. That was mine. Whatever your name is in Hebrew, that was mine. And then he took Agag and he came back to Saul's. And he said, Samuel, Samuel, here I am. And he said, We did what you said, verse 13. Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Then what is all this bleeding of the sheep in mine ear and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? If you did what I said, what's all these live animals mean? Now you would think, as I would, because they didn't say the words come on then the way we say come on today. Saul could have said today, come on, Samuel. Come on, man. Come on, man. Doesn't it make sense to you? Samuel could have easily said, I'm not here to make human sense out of anything. I'm here to bring to you the word of God. This is what God told me to say. This is what God wants you to do. Nothing else is right. Notice the next thing that he said here. In verse 15, and Saul said, well, they, the people out there, of course, I'm a victim here, you know that, but he said, they, they brought them forth from the Amalekites for the people, not me, (laughs) come on, man, the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord, and we destroyed all the rest of them, as a people's fault. I mean, you know how people are. I mean, human nature, 210,000 people. I can't control 210,000 people. They want to save a few sheep. What am I supposed to do? Run over there and knock them upside the head? Kill that sheep. That, I guess, is a way of excusing yourself from needing to be obedient. I mean, it's common today while I'm speaking. It's a common thing that people do. And then he said down in verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you fly upon the spoil? And why did you evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said, he said, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I have gone the way which the Lord sent me. I have brought to you Agag the king. And and I have utterly destroyed all the Amalekites. But the people. Isn't it amazing? It's always somebody else's fault. Isn't it amazing? It's always somebody else's fault. The people. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep, and the oxen. The chief of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed. See, he knew that. His conscience knew that. And Samuel said to him, Have the Lord as great delight in sacrifice, fatlings, and so forth, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken in the fat of rams. Notice this, for rebellion, listen to it, America. Listen to this, modern church age. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou has rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected you from being king. One time, one mistake, you're done. You say, is that fair? You ask him. I'll tell you what's fair, what I'm glad wasn't fair. My first sin, my second, and my last 4,000 of them. I'm glad I didn't die because I could have died for any of them. That woman could have died for what she did. Grace and mercy is wonderful. So it said in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words. See, he knew that because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He knew that. He lied like a dog earlier. The people, the people. He knew that he could have stopped it He could have stopped it. Now, therefore, I pray, pardon me, my sin, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Now, that's pretty strong conviction, isn't it? You talk about the the subject of separation in this world. The Bible subject, to separate ourselves, 2 Corinthians 6. There's a lot of things that we Christians should separate ourselves from and have nothing to do with. We turn away from. The only reason is that because as Christians, we cannot do that and at the same time be right with God. How many of you know that shun the appearance of evil is still scriptural? If it's evil, we can't do that. I don't care if my kid wants to wear the school jacket that's got a devil on the back of it. He's not going to do it. Not in my house, he's not going to play in anything in that school and wear that stuff on his jacket. And then you make every parent in the church mad because you said that. I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I'm trying to say what's right. There's some things we need to sit down and make a real difficult decision about in our life about what we're going to do about it. There's just some things you can't do. I'm not going to put Mickey Mouse on my shirt. I'm not going to put all that occult stuff around me. I don't want four-leaf clovers hanging around my neck or anything occult in my house from Ouija boards to astrology charts to horoscope. I don't want any of that because I know the author behind all of that stuff is the devil. And why should I have anything to do with that? I used to, I didn't know any better. I was ignorant. God winked at my ignorance. He had tolerated me that. But then after he saved me and brought me where he could teach me and then begin to say things to me and cause me to listen, I begin to realize that my whole life has been corrupt. No wonder the mind has to be renewed because that's your thinking. That's where your will is. I've made all the wrong choices my whole life. People have talked me out of what's right. Now you see what's right, and you say, Oh, God. Oh, preacher, keep preaching, keep going. That's not long enough. I got to wait another week to come back. You ever been like that? I thought you were. Oh, God, teach me uh, good hymns to sing. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Why? Why? You mean the Bible? Yeah. All that holy stuff? Yeah. Why? Man, you're just going to get guilt if you listen to that. That's true. But I can never repent and turn. I can never make the turn until guilt comes. I can never make the turn to holiness in all the many turns I've got to make in my life. As this life is like a funnel, it comes down to the end. You just keep changing. More and more, God opens your heart to see things. And he's cleansing us, the Bible calls it. You know how he cleanses us? John fifteen three. now you are clean through what? The word that I've spoken to you. He will sanctify, separate and cleanse his church with the washing of water by the word of God. God said in Ezekiel, he said, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and I will purge you and cleanse you. Otherwise, I will have to judge you, because if I don't change you, then I can't call you faithful. I can't say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So you see, the problem with old... Saul, Saul just simply compromised what was heard, what he said. He didn't believe all that. He demonstrated his heart by the choices he made and what he brought back to say, hey, hey, he didn't call him Sam, but hey, big Sam, what's happening? And he didn't do that. He said, Samuel, I did what you said. Samuel said, what's all that noise about them oxen and them sheep I hear back there? They don't sound dead to me. Well... You know how people are. They, they, you know, they did that. And hey, here's Agag, old bad Agag. You know what Samuel did to him? How many of you know, after he rebuked Saul, what Samuel did to Agag? You know what the prophet did to this king after they got through talking? He took a sword and hacked him Bible said hewed. We don't use hewed that much, but he hacked him in pieces. That's a pretty gory thing to watch, I would, I would think. This is a bad man. Agag was a Hitler of his day. He was bad, but he got what was coming to him. Let me show you something else. Turn to Daniel on the other side of Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 6 talk about convictions and not compromising daniel is said in chapter 1 daniel had an excellent spirit there was something about daniel that was exceeding but he was excellent most of all not because he was worldly wise though he had that he had an excellent spirit because he was turned to god His heart was to do what God wanted, to do things God's way. And so in chapter 6, a decree was made by Daniel's enemies that if anybody prays to any other God, in the end of verse 7, they shall be cast into the den of lions. You know the story well. Now, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the writing was agreed to, it became a law and it could not change. It was forever that law. Now, when Daniel heard that, that the writing had been signed, he went into his house and his windows and opened the chambers up towards Jerusalem and he prayed. Now, let me ask you a question. Would today, would he not be labeled differently than convicted? Maybe radical maybe adversarial, maybe just putting on a show, I ain't afraid of you. We say, no, sir, that was what he did every day. That was the way he lived before God. Turning towards Jerusalem doesn't make it more spiritual. Any more than getting in a closet makes your prayer more spiritual. Prayer comes from your heart wherever you are, sitting, standing, riding, lying down, wherever you are. A prayer is what is emitted or comes forth from your heart to God. Usually in the form of words, but God knows the thoughts and the meditations of your heart. He knows that. And so, Daniel said, you know what, I'm not in defiance here of the king. I know what the rule and the law is. But I'm not going to let a law that is passed by man change my conviction. If this is going to cost me my life, and it probably will, I'm going to do it. Not because I want to die, not because I'm trying to be cool or trying to be tough, simply because... I have more regard for God and the way I live before him than I do with what man doesn't want me to do. So he opened the window and he began to pray. Well, they saw him praying and they come before the king and they said, he's doing it. Who? They said, Daniel, what's he doing? Well, he's praying to some other God, that God of his hometown, I guess. You passed the law, you know, kitty cats. So boy, he didn't like that, but he put him down there in those lions. And he spake unto Daniel, and he said in verse 16, Thy God, whom thou servest, continually, he will deliver you. I think that's what he really wanted to happen. He didn't want that man to die. He was a good man. The king in his heart, his conscience knew that what he did wasn't wrong. But he couldn't change it because of the law. He knew that it was wrong. So the king put him in the lion's den. And the next day he came and got Daniel out. And you know why Daniel said he was spared? Because he was tough. No, sir. It says at the end of the 23rd verse, because he believed in his God. So the articles, the liberals write, well, there have been a lot of people that believe God and the Alliance ATM. You think he's better than everybody else? You people think you're better than everybody else? (laughs) Absolutely not. I'm better than nobody. Me personally. I'm just glad to be here. I really am. I'm glad to be here. I don't deserve anything. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be who I am. And you who you are. And we're here. I'm better than nobody. I'm superior to nobody. Somebody asked me in my office once, you think you're the only church? <laughs> Absolutely not. If you knew how I really felt about who I really was in my heart, you wouldn't say that. But I know what you're trying to say. So they said, Daniel, are you still in there? He said, I am. Get me out of here. There's a bad-looking lion down here. He keeps staring. Get me out of here. And he did. Go to chapter 3. Wonderful story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hanani, Mishael, and what's the others? Hebrew boys had become Chaldeans. They wouldn't dance to the king's music. Somebody told on them, said, you know, those Hebrew kids, you know, those troublemakers from Israel, they won't honor what you want. You know, the statue you made, they won't bow to it. They won't honor this, you know, this God that you have made of yourself. And Boy, Nebuchadnezzar was hot. He was upset. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to to do. You all fired me up. He said, I'm going to get the band out. We're going to start playing. And when you hear the music, I better see some bowing out of you boys, or you're going in the fiery furnace. What would you do, and what would you tell your loving child to do if it was them? You don't want them to die, do you? You want your children to die? No. So what would you say? Little Bobby, Billy, Joe, whatever his name is. Look, it's not that big a deal. Let this pass. Just do that. There's a little statue. A statue's nothing. You know that. It's just some kind of a man-made God. Just don't, you know. There's no reason. There's no, it's a senseless death. I mean, why would you die because you wouldn't bow to something? I mean, come on. So just do that, and then we'll get through this, and then we'll work on a better day. Is that compromise? You tell me. Is it sense or compromise? Well, it all depends on what you believe. Are you convicted that you cannot bow yourself before any other God? Huh? Are you convicted of that? Well, then, if it's going to cost you your life, you're still convicted? What if you're going to die for it? I don't want my children dying because of some dumb idol. I want them to live. But these three Hebrew boys have been separated from their parents a long time ago. They were all disbanded and drug away and separated. Like the tragic story of the Cajuns, you know, the Cajuns were separated and children were left and the parents went down to... South part of the United States and other state of Nova Scotia. It was tragic history. But, 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 but. They said, you know what? You can spare your band. Let me see. Those are not the right words that he used. But they said to him in verse 16, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. If so be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, but even if he doesn't, be it known to you, king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image which you have set up. And he was so hot, he heated that furnace up. How many times hotter? Seven times hotter. It was so hot that one of the guys trying to stoke it was burned up. Whew. And he threw those boys in there. Somehow they got back and got them a good run and threw them in that furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king, you know, trying to see them go, poof, there goes three more Jews. Poof. Looked in there and there was three. What, whoop, there's four. Who's that other one? Is Jesus in there talking to him? Because fire doesn't bother him. And he said, hey, who's that other person? Somebody said, looks like one of the gods. Come here, get out of there, come out of there. And they came out, didn't even smell like smoke. You know why they survived and why we will survive in the last days if we survive? Convictions. Your convictions, all of you, will be challenged. They will be put to the test and if the devil can't get you, he'll challenge you with your children. Just like John said, he talked to his kids. He said, you know, the day come we may be separated. And you may be yanked and gone one way or gone another. way. I pray that you will never forget what we've been taught about trusting God and holding fast. For there's never a bad ending to a man's life who's trusting God. Never. Amen. It always works out right. That all things will work together, how? For good for those that love the Lord. But you see, this is what he wanted. Serve the king. He said, we're not going to serve the king. When you want us to do that, we won't do it. We have a conviction about that. We're not going to do it. Years ago, in the Reformation period, there was an Augustinian monk whose name was Luther, Martin Luther. Not the modern king, Junior one, but this Martin Luther, the original, went down to Rome one time, saw things there that really bothered him. To get money to build the Saint Peter's, they were selling indulgences, you know, and indulgence was a quicker way of getting out of purgatory. A little more money, you don't have to spend as much time there. These poor Catholics believed that because for for several centuries the prevailing Religion in Europe was Catholicism. There were other groups. There's always been a remnant of something else. But this was the prevailing religion. It was so corrupt. I don't know if Catholics today would want to admit it, but it was very, very corrupt. And Luther, at the appointed time in history, you know, the printing presses were starting to roll. and People were starting to question this. Well, Luther wrote on the Wittenberg Catholic. He put 95 theses His problems with the catholic church with pope leo and and anybody else in the system he put it up there and when they read that they took it down there to the pope and they said we want him down here which means they want to just kill him so he wouldn't go down there but so they brought him up to germany a place called worms i don't know how you, it might be wombs in german i don't know but they had what is called a diet of worms now a diet means a uh, a council a gathering of certain people on a certain occasion to deal with a certain specific issue. They had a lot of them in those days. But the diet of worms didn't mean that they had a plate, you know. <laughs> so they brought Luther down to this diet of worms. Now, Luther had a lot of followers because he questioned the Pope. He questioned Catholicism's major practices. or a lot of them. He believed that salvation was entirely by faith and not by works. He translated the New Testament into German. He wrote many books. But what got him in trouble was his stand, his conviction, his beliefs, his stand. So this meeting lasted from January to May, this diet. And in the process of that, Luther was brought before this council And they had a table out there in the room, and all of his books that he had written were assembled on the table. And there was the cross-examiner, Johann Eck, they called him, and he was a pretty intelligent man himself. He said, are all these writings yours, Luther? He eventually said, yes. And you believe everything that you've written here? And then it's had 95 thesis, because it started out with, will you recant or not? And uh, he said, well, I'm, I need a day to think about a question you've asked me. So they gave him one day, and he came back the following day. Listen at, at these words. At the end of his little speech, his life is hanging in the balance. All he has to do is recant. Nero's garden that burned with Christians were filled with people who would not recant. The frivolous age we're living in right now, people will give up most anything to get what they want. It's all about me. But for a Christian, it's all about Jesus. And you want me to change to get something and give up Christ to do it? No. Not for cheerleading, not for a boyfriend, a girlfriend, education education, a scholarship. I won't give up anything if I have to deny Christ to get it. nothing. I would rather not have it. How are you going to make it in this world? I'll trust the Lord. Well, that won't work. Well, it will. But anyway, he said these words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradict themselves, He said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. This is before the highest religious order of his day. Whether the pope was there or not, he might have been. But Luther was afterwards labeled by Emperor Charles V as an outlaw. and said, anybody in all of Germany can kill this man without any. You don't have to tell us what you did. Just kill him and he get rid of him. He was ruled by the pope to be a heretic, and all of his writings were to be burned. Now, I'm not a Lutherite. I mean, I, he was totally anti-Jewish. He was anti-Semitic. Now, that part of him was not good. But all these other things about his conscience in the Reformation, this probably was one of the great turning points in the Reformation. Here was a man who stood up against the system, not because he wanted to aggravate the system, but he believed the system was misleading the people. And God had opened his eyes. For centuries, it had never been opened, but God opened his eyes, showed him that salvation was by faith and faith alone and not by works. And he was labeled a heretic. And he was willing to be labeled a heretic. He was willing to be their outlaw, their whatever they called him to be, but he would not change his mind. As he said, I am bound by the scriptures I have agreed to, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. How many people are like that in the world today in some of these high religious places? I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. That's what Luther said. And his life is on the line. Anyway, he was heading back to where he was going, and he was captured by the good guys, hid in a castle, and there he wrote books and later got married and so on and so forth. He is for us a picture of what conviction is. What makes us different? Not that we go to church. Thousands and millions of people do that. Not that we sing hymns. Multitudes do that. Not that we raise our hands or clap our hands. A lot of people do that. What makes us different? The thing that makes us different is the thing that makes us right. That's the word of God and our convictions. And we desire and we need a conscience that bears witness to the rightness of that word and when we subscribe to the rightness of that word and we live like that the just shall live how? by faith then we are living a right life and we find favor with God as we live that way how easy it is to compromise your conviction we don't have time to go into all the uh, Jeremiah 35 the Rechabites You, you probably don't know who the Rechabites were They were a clan of people that made a decision centuries before or years before. Their father said, never drink wine, never build houses, and something else. And God, in showing his people the way they should be, he told the prophet, he said, bring all these people together. Bring the Rechabites together. He brought them together and said, now set pots of wine before them and tell them to drink it. You know, the prophet and they said, we won't drink that. We made a vow. We made a commitment. We have a conviction about our vow and our commitment that we can't do that. And we won't do that. And God said now to his people, he used that as an example. He said, these people made a vow to a human father. He said in chapter 35, I have risen early. I have sent the prophets. I have longed after you and spoken many times. You said, you treat me as though I never said a word. And yet these people honor their father many, 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 many years later. That's the way it should be with us and God. Convictions. Convictions. God, give me a conscience that is sensitive and, and careful. I know this. I know this. I'm running out of time, but I know this. That means we have to do it again. I know this, that when you have, if you're a preacher, if you're a pastor, you can be a church leader, but especially if you're standing in a place of accountability and responsibility required to preach, you didn't hire me and you can't fire me because God puts a man where he wants him, whether we like him or not. He puts him there, and he gives him a word. Maybe not an eloquent, smooth thing, but a word when the word of God is being spoken sometimes it comes from a very polished well-heeled speaker and it's just a lot of wonderful wow listen to those words but if the word doesn't cut whats hebrews 4:12 say for the word of God is living and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing asunder and it said it's a discerner of the Thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's where your conscience is. That's where your conscience is. That's where the thing in you that's going to do some things or your conviction, whatever you're going to do, is going to come from there. That's what the Word of God goes after. Now, if the Word you're hearing isn't doing that to you, you're not hearing the Word or you're not listening or your ears have been shut. Because a flashy, flamboyant, whoopie-doo word that doesn't cut and penetrate and cause us to be convicted about something isn't necessarily the word. You see, God gives us his word to change our lives. We could call it funnel Christianity. I mentioned that a while ago. We start with the broader, and the further we walk, the narrower it gets. Ooh-ha! Holy, holy! You go through the little narrow. Holy, you made it. Look how much you changed. Look at how many times you cried and wept and complained about what you heard. And yakety yak about this. Why do he talk about that? He knows I've been married before. Why do he say that? Because sometimes there's this compelling moment that God wants his word to be spoken not to hurt people Not to harm people But to spare his people To spare them We talk about Christmas And all I have to say to anybody Christmas folks, we don't need to celebrate Christmas. There is no Christmas in the Bible Paul made it clear that we don't celebrate days and times or seasons and I'll tell you the truth. There really is not a Santa Claus. He doesn't ride the, the roofs because most homes don't have chimneys anymore. He has to come through the the heater duct. It's foolish, isn't it? It's about as spiritual as tooth fairy. We got enough fairy stuff in the world. We don't need that. The tooth fairy. Pull your tooth, put it on your pillow, and there'll be a quarter there in the morning, unless you're well to do, and there'll be a buck there. No, it won't. It didn't come from God. What's a fairy? Oh, brother Ham, quit being so narrow. I'm not trying to be narrow. I just am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying at all. If you knew what I wanted to say right now, you'd go, whoo, it's time to go eat so we'll save it for next Sunday. All I'm telling you is that God never brought us, me or you, into a place like this to play games with our minds, to make us think we're something that God says we're not. He said, if they speak not according to this word, I'll close with this conviction. When I first came to Shelbyville, I knew who was here then, all 20 of them, but I didn't know 18 of them well. I knew Bonnie. But I got to know people well, and I remember one of the guys, I won't mention his name, but he wouldn't mind, but I won't mention it, but he worked at the distillery in Frankfurt where they make whiskey. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, whiskey, I don't think a Christian ought to make whiskey that personally is my opinion i don't have a verse in the bible that says thou shalt not make whiskey but i didn't think that was the kind of job that uh, would glorify god making people drunk and beat their wives and cause accidents I, that just didn't you know smoking does it you know smoking makes people run off the road and do this and do that drinking doesn't never mind never mind excuse me I didn't say anything about it at the time because I thought, well, I just got here. He just told me about it. He hadn't been a Christian very long, and I don't want to jam this down his throat. I don't know that I can point to a particular verse that says, thou shalt not. But it's in there. It's It's a principle. So not long after this, in our conversation, he said, you know, Lord convicted me about my job. A good job. Making pretty good money, as I understand it, at the time. The Lord's convicted me about this job. And he said, I, I I don't think I can do it anymore. My conscience bothers me about what I'm doing here. A company is making a product that is destroying people and harming people. And I, I, I'm a part of that. I'm a part of that same system. I don't want to be a part of that. So he went in and resigned. Of course, he had some time in and all of that and ready for the boost and the bonuses and the... Better jobs, and he said, you're going to do what? Quit, man, this is the best job in the world. And he said, there's nothing to it. Just sit in the back of the room every now and then, go check on this, and, you know. But he gave it up, and I remember thinking, now here's a case where very little was ever said or taught, but this man had enough conscience, and as we like to say in the South, figuring out sense that he put two and two together, and he thought, you know, a Christian ought to be doing this. I don't think it's right to drink. I wouldn't want anybody to drink. No drinking in my... And here I am making the stuff. And he's right. That don't fit. And that ain't going to be right. i quit. He quit. Now, would you call that conviction? I would. About a third of you say, uh-huh. All the rest of you thought, well, how much money was he making? <laughs> well, I think he left all that at maybe $15 an hour to do a job for $4 or $5 an hour. Brother Guthrie was buying a house. He was paying $200 a month house payment. Got convicted about being in debt. Sold his house and rented a house for $600 a month. And the world says, all y'all crazy. Except now all his houses and another two or three pieces of land that he bought is all paid for. So maybe crazy is on the other side of the street. God doesn't mislead us. If your life this morning, while I'm standing here, if your life needs an adjustment and you're not told that it needs to be adjusted, you'll probably never be convicted about making an adjustment. Sometimes what you're told makes you mad. Well, he didn't have to say that. He knew what I believed. Well, how I I, I, well, you? you know, I then you get alone and you can't escape that gnawing voice. God won't leave you alone, said. But was it true? Well, was, uh, how would I know? And God says, Precisely. You don't even know what you're talking about. You're like Job, a man full of words without knowledge. So then you took a few notes. You wouldn't want the guy that taught this to see it, but you took a few notes and you ventured a few looks. You said You know what? I believe he's right. God is never going to leave us alone because what he's after is getting you stable and grounded with convictions that you will not change even if it costs you your life. Think about it. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to grant to us that measure of grace that brings us to a place of conviction. That we might consider our own lives and measure our own lives, not by other people, but by you. That we quit trying to be as good as other people are. And Lord, just see what you've got to say and live like that. There are many people sitting before me this morning, Lord. They're, they're your sheep. They're not mine. They're yours. You called them in here. You brought us together. Everybody here has a soul. The loved ones they're thinking about now, they have souls too. A soul has a need to be saved. And redone and fixed. And only you can do it. Teach us your ways so that we can walk in your truth. Put your words in our mouths and in our hearts so that we can speak the truth in love and open doors for people to be set free. I ask you to do it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. My soul followeth hard after thee. Early Has been my hand Under the shadow